The Blade Runner gets bail. It's Friday, February 22nd from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter in for Marker Werman. A dramatic week comes to a close in South Africa as Oscar Pistorius, accused of murder, is granted bail. This writer thinks it was, well, an ordinary week in the larger context of South Africa. Probably the only true line that I've ever really written about South Africa is that we yaw between terror and ecstasy. Quite often we, we do the round trip several times in a single day. And later, Tunisia auctions off its former dictator's stash. Several dozen luxury cars, some of them armor-plated. If you want to put a bid in, they're there. Plus, foreign language films that are not up for an Oscar. Rise, the world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. It's been a bloody week in Syria. A car bombing yesterday in Damascus killed nearly 60 people and wounded more than 200. It was the deadliest attack in the capital since the civil war erupted. Both the government and Syria's opposition blame the other side for the escalating violence. The opposition also claims that the government is working with the powerful Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. Thanasi Kambanis is a fellow with the Century Foundation and has written extensively on Hezbollah. He's in Beirut. Thanasi, the Free Syrian Army accuses Hezbollah of fighting on behalf of the Assad government and earlier this week threatened to hit back. What might that mean? It's a very dangerous and potentially explosive situation, as you can imagine. There's two aspects to it. One is the border area in which it's been known for a long time that Hezbollah fighters are, are involved, but so are pretty much every faction. That's less alarming in that these are people who actually are fighting in places where they live, uh, and it has potential to spread, but, but not really to set off a, a wider conflict. Uh, the second aspect of this, though, is much more dangerous, and that is Hezbollah's official involvement with the Syrian regime. Uh, we've had evidence for some time that Hezbollah uh, special forces are working with the, the Syrian regime to train the Shabiha, the sort of popular militia that is fighting on behalf of the government. Uh, and they've been uh, spotted quite far afield from the border helping out government forces. And that is something that has really deepened uh, sectarian animosity both in Syria and uh, here in Lebanon. Now help us to understand why would Hezbollah get involved in this way, as you say, move from working along the border to actually inside Syria? So there's a very deep commitment, uh, ideological and strategic, between Hezbollah, the Syrian government, and the Iranian government. They are uh, Shia regimes. They are anti-Israel regimes that are united in a, in a project of armed resistance against the Jewish state. Uh, and they've really stuck together during decades, even when they were very politically isolated. And now Hezbollah like Syria, like Iran, sees itself in a sort of existential battle uh, for survival in, in this region, and they don't want to let one of their sort of cornerstones fall. They're also acting, if officials are to be believed, like what we would see as a normal terrorist group attacking targets around the world. Earlier this month, Bulgaria charged Hezbollah with being responsible for a July bombing. 
If the evidence that we've seen proves to be true, and we have to bear in mind these are still court proceedings and investigations, but if the accumulating evidence turns out to be true, it will signal that Hezbollah has shifted back to attacks against civilian targets, attacks that uh, most of the Western world defines as terrorist. Uh, This is a, a big shift in strategy because For more than a decade, Hezbollah has very carefully tried avoiding uh, any kinds of attacks that that we would define as terrorist so that they can argue not to be placed, for example, on Europe's terrorist lists and so that they can escape uh, sanctions uh, from Western countries. Now, if they are, in fact, attacking tourists in Bulgaria and trying to blow up tourists in in Thailand and and, uh, Cyprus and elsewhere, as has been alleged, that'll be something of a return to the 80s when Hezbollah was known for kidnapping civilians and, and torturing them and blowing up soft targets wherever it could find them. And finally, I just want to ask you about this free Syrian army threat that uh, they will take the fight to Hezbollah. It doesn't seem especially credible that they could take on Hezbollah in no small part because it would create another front for them. As long as the sort of talk is not accompanied by attacks inside Lebanon, it won't really mark any kind of change. Right now, all these parties are involved in in attacks on each other inside Syria. So let's hope that this is just a rhetorical flourish. Now, if the Free Syrian Army attacks inside Lebanon, that's going to be a game changer and that's going to be a bad one for everyone involved. And I would have to suppose that none of the major players here want to see this conflict spread to Lebanon if they can avoid it. So it's in their interest to keep the shooting and the shelling on the Syrian side of the border for the time being. Thanasi Kambanis is a fellow with the Century Foundation and is author of A Privilege to Die Inside Hezbollah's Legions and Their Endless War Against Israel. Thanasi, thanks. Great to be with you, Aaron. Israel has been a sticking point in President Obama's nomination of former GOP Senator Chuck Hagel to be defense secretary. Just yesterday, 15 Republican senators sent a letter to the president. They urged him to withdraw the nomination. While it's looking increasingly like Increasingly like Hegel will be confirmed, his former colleagues continue to hammer him for his perceived views on Israel. But as the world's Matthew Bell reports, Israelis don't necessarily welcome the attention from U.S. lawmakers. When Chuck Hagel got a grilling in the Senate earlier this month, the word Israel came up an awful lot, especially from Hegel's former Republican colleagues. They questioned the nominee on his commitment to Israel so relentlessly that the writers at Saturday Night Live were moved to poke some fun. Chair recognizes the senator from Arizona, Mr. McCain. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Hagel, I I think you know that no one in this room cares more deeply about the safety and security of Israel than I do. Well, that is a lie! I I love Israel more. The sketch goes on to become rather crude, and maybe that's part of the reason it never actually made it to air. Still, a video of the dress rehearsal got plenty of attention online. Blogger Andrew Sullivan is a critic of Israeli government policy toward the Palestinians, and he posted the video, calling it a cultural breakthrough for exposing the, quote, absurdly overblown power of the greater Israel lobby. One factor at play here, in both the comedy sketch and in the U.S. Senate, is something historian Gil Troy calls the Israel exaggeration factor. He's at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. What happens is that somehow when you talk about Israel, people get extreme. So there's an anti-Israel discussion, which is far too hysterical, far too critical, far too harsh. And then there's a pro-Israel discussion in reaction, which is equally hysterical and equally extreme. 
When members of Congress turn support for Israel into a partisan litmus test, Troy says that's not good for Israel or the U.S. This is a core relationship, and this is a relationship that does best when it's bipartisan, and it's a relationship when it, that does best when there aren't recriminations going back and forth with people competing um, who's most pro-Israel and who's anti-Israel, but we acknowledge the fact that on the whole, most politicians in the United States of America, most Americans are only pro-Israel. And within that, there's a range of debate, because there should be, about how do you solve these complicated problems in the Middle East? Some Israelis are uneasy about what Chuck Hagel might bring to U.S. defense policy. Yekiel Michael Leiter is one of them. He's a former chief of staff for Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Leiter believes Hagel would be too cautious when it comes to national security threats facing the U.S. and its allies. Yet he's uncomfortable with the Senate's emphasis on Israel. But the issue goes way beyond Israel. And if senators are putting Israel in the, in the foci of this issue, they're probably making a mistake. Israeli officials have been careful not to say much publicly about the Hegel nomination. And whatever happens at the Pentagon, Mr. Obama will have the opportunity to explain his decision in person. He's scheduled to visit here next month for the first time in his presidency. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Israel is one of several countries the president will visit during his trip to the Middle East next month. He's also expected to make stops in Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Jordan. One Mideast country not on the itinerary is Tunisia. The North African country plunged into political chaos this week when the country's prime minister quit. It's the latest turmoil in Tunisia since the revolution there got the Arab Spring rolling. That revolution swept longtime President Zine al Abidine Ben Ali from power after 24 years. Ben Ali was forced to flee to Saudi Arabia. But it seems he wasn't able to pack up some of his most prized possessions. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Mideast correspondent, Sasha Petrasik, joins us now. Sasha, as you've reported, Tunisia's holding a fire sale to make some money off the former dictator's loot. First of all, where was this luxury garage sale held? Well, Aaron, the sale was held in this shabby old casino, actually a building that was built for a casino, never used in that way. And now it's home to this garage sale. Yeah, and there's some incredible stuff there, including a number of cars like uh, Lamborghinis and Bentleys. What were some of the other vehicles that were there for those looking for something special? Well, if you wanted to pick up maybe an Aston Martin, uh, there was one particular model that was handmade in Britain. There's a little plaque inside that actually says that. It has the name of the owner, who happens to be the um, son-in-law of Ben Ali himself, this car apparently is only one of two of this model that was ever built in the world. Reportedly, the other one belongs or belonged to Elton John. There's a couple of others as well, a Mercedes that uh, was a gift from uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the former dictator in Libya next door. And then mixed in among these very unique cars were uh, Rolls Royces, uh, many, many BMWs, even a Volkswagen Touareg that looked like a family car that was being used by one of Ben Ali's children. So a real mixture of things, but really several dozen luxury cars, some of them armor plated, all up for sale. And if you want to put a bid in, they're there. Yeah. So this is an auction. There are no price tags on them. That's right. Now, there were also household goods, um, Xboxes, fridges, and some uh, nice shiny items as well. 
Well, yeah, you know, when you get into that section where you really see and get this feeling of a household up for sale, it has everything from curtains that were taken off the windows. There are many, many shoes that used to belong to his wife, fur coats, there are jackets, other pieces of clothing, his own shirts, his own shoes. And then the things that were a little bit more unique here were gifts that were brought from foreign leaders when Ben Ali hosted these various heads of state in his palace. And these were uh, golden camels and cut crystal stallions and Buddhas on sort of podiums and a great deal of this kind of stuff that I'm not quite sure where you would put in a regular household, but that's also up for sale. We're making light of this just a bit because of some of the outrageous luxury items for sale, but there is a serious side to this. Tunisia needs to sell this stuff to make money. They do. They do. I think there's really two purposes for selling this. One of it is, in fact, to make money. The economy is shrinking. It hasn't been doing well since the revolution. The jobless rate is is very, very high, in some cases over 50%. So this is a big problem. The other side, though, is really to put that whole era behind them. You know, Ben Ali's ghost really hangs around the entire country. You see it everywhere. Everybody still knows of him. Everybody still kind of fears him a little bit. In a way, this is a step in the direction of getting rid of that. The CBC's Middle East correspondent, Sasha Petrasik, who's been to a sale of former Tunisian dictator Zin al-Abidin Ben Ali's possessions. You can read more of Sasha's great story on our website, theworld.org. Sasha, thank you. My pleasure, Aaron. And no word on whether or not you can bid online. As your kids are watching cartoons this weekend, grab your tablet and flip through the world's in-depth reporting. You can read and listen to the world on the popular Flipboard app. Download for your iPad, iPhone, or Android device at flipboard.com slash the world. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. It's Academy Awards time this weekend in Los Angeles, and people all over the globe will be turning in to see who gets to take Oscar home. Five films are officially up for Foreign Language Award. Matt Holtzman hosts Matt's Movies at KCRW in L.A. I asked him to share some of his favorite foreign language films not up for an award. He started off with a couple of French flicks. Well, one film is The Intouchables. It's an incredibly feel-good movie about a very wealthy man who is a paraplegic and his streetwise aide who takes care of them and their exploits. That was actually nominated by France to be in the Oscars. Police, which is, in my opinion, a kind of superior film, was not nominated by France, and a country can only nominate one film. It's actually about the Child Protective Services Division of the Paris Police Department, which sounds terribly, terribly serious, and it has those moments. But because they're dealing with such horror, they have this sense of kind of uh, macabre humor that it just infects the film, and it has a love story in it, and it's just an extraordinary film from beginning to end. Some of the other movies you like? 
So one of the films that was submitted for uh, Best Foreign Language Film was from Romania called Beyond the Hills, and it wasn't nominated. The filmmaker is a guy named Christian Monju. He made a film called Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days in 2007, which also was not nominated. And both films are... Oh, gosh, how to say it. They make Amour, which is about, you know, a love affair and, a, and an elderly woman dying, look positively like a romantic comedy. I mean, they are two of the darkest films you could possibly see, but extraordinarily well made. His last one was about abortion, right? It was about a woman trying to get kind of an off-market abortion. And this is a movie about a woman in a monastery and another woman who's obsessed with her and who kind of goes mad and trying to extricate her from this monastic influence. You know, Ceausescu's been gone f- from Romania for 20 years, but it's, he still seems to have some effect on the people there because these films are incredibly well-made but incredibly dark. It seems like Bleak is your thing. Another movie you've talked about is from East Berlin, a movie by German director Christian Petzold. It's called uh, Barbara. You know movies are dark when the film that's about East Germany is actually not that dark in comparison. (laughs) And in fact, Barbara is actually a love story. It's about a a doctor in East Germany who's being punished by being sent to a small town and who nominally finds love there and decides that love is more important than her freedom. Very small, very subtle, very low-key film. And love in East Germany, what could be more romantic than that? Let's end with a contender that never would be a contender, actually. It's a film that was literally smuggled out of Iran in a cake. It's called This Is Not a Film. It wouldn't be a contender, it's, and it's not a film, because it's called This Is Not a Film. Iran, the country that would have to nominate it, would never nominate it. It's this great filmmaker, Jafar Panahi. It's essentially a documentary about him trying not to make a film, but to make a film because he's been banned by the government from making films. It's kind of like the Seinfeld of documentaries. Nothing much happens, and yet you really do get a sense of what life is like on the ground there. The Iranian government did not put a film up for foreign film this year because the Oscar, the Academy, didn't take an official position on that horrible Innocence of Muslims YouTube video, to which I respond, you know, the Academy didn't take a position on Battleship either, uh, but, you know, nobody's making a big stink about that. (laughs) Who's your pick to win this Sunday? My pick would be Police. Unfortunately, it was not nominated by France, so that won't win. It's going to be a more. You sound almost disappointed. To me, the best movies are the movies that are both great art and both great entertainment. And I think a film like Police really is both. Whereas a more is great art. And, you know, it's, it's a very, very difficult film. But it's a wonderful film. Matt Holtzman hosts Matt's Movies on KCRW in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. For more of Matt's foreign language picks, check out our podcast, The World in Words. You'll find it at theworld.org. And while you're there, reporter Maria Bacalopolo has a new blog post. It features a great video of Le Trio Gibran, a Palestinian group of oud players heard on the soundtrack to the Oscar-nominated documentary Five Broken Cameras. Again, that's all at theworld.org. The media in Russia has been in a frenzy this week over the death of a young boy in Texas. Max Shadow was three years old when he died last month. He was born Maxim Kuzmin in Russia and was adopted by an American couple before Moscow imposed a ban on such adoptions at the end of last year. Russian officials allege Max was killed, and the press is calling for his brother, who was adopted by the same family, to be returned to Mother Russia. 
The American ambassador to Russia today appealed to the media there to stop what he called the sensational exploitation of the case. Fred Weir is Moscow correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. First off, Fred, give us a taste of the coverage this case is getting in Russia. The State Duma, the lower house of parliament, held a special session in which, I mean, they dramatized it enormously. They held a minute of silence for Max, and there were just unbelievably inflammatory speeches. We must stop all foreign adoptions. We can't send our children to certain death in foreign countries. And the media has picked up that. There's been very, very little pushback. They didn't even wait to find out the facts. There were some preliminary reports which led the Kremlin's children's rights ombudsman to tweet that this boy had been murdered by his mother, died before an ambulance came, and everybody picked that up. Yeah, the medical examiner in Texas hasn't returned a verdict yet. But this case does seem to play into uh, Russian government officials' hands. Yes, and, of course, the public, which is also primed by everything that's come before to become really passionately angry. I mean, I remember when I first heard about this, thinking it it could not have come at a worse time. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy, but the whole atmosphere here was primed for it. It's like a perfect storm. Everything was in place for Russia to just explode over it. Yeah, there have been tit-for-tat measures by the U.S. Congress and uh, the Russian Duma. But but, but is there a reason that relations are, are so tense right now? I think there's a combination of things. But one of them is that when Vladimir Putin came back to power almost a year ago, he faced this situation where there's a rising protest movement, which he blames on the West. And he quite consciously decided to cut off relations on a lot of levels. They have passed laws against NGOs that are financed from abroad. They've passed laws to crack down on people who work with foreigners in Russia. There's been a systematic cutting off of relations uh, amid rising acrimony on both sides. We've seen this over the past several months. And then the U.S. Congress passed this Magnitsky Act, which basically levels sanctions against Russian officials who are deemed to be guilty of human rights abuses, to which Russia passed this Dima Yakovlev Act, which bans adoptions by U.S. citizens. It's not a symmetrical response. You see, things are escalating. And along with that, the public mood here in Russia has become angrily anti-American and anti-foreigner and suspicious, like I have not seen it before in the 27 years I've lived and worked here. There, so, so uh, would you, Fred, would you suggest that... Um This is being whipped up by the Kremlin to create an enemy of sorts of the United States? Well, well, this is an old, I mean, this has been going on for several months. The enemy image, building it up and and burnishing it, is, is well underway. Fred Weir is Moscow correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Many thanks for your time. My pleasure. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead on the world, the comedian who's rattling the politicians in Italy, Beppe Grillo, and his five-star movement are poised to make an impact on this weekend's Italian elections. In the initial years, it was viewed very much as a joke. It was a comedian's movement which they figured would just be a bubble. And that hasn't happened. 
WBRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Another tense day in the Oscar Pistorius murder case. All week, a judge in Pretoria has been listening to the defense and prosecution over, argue over whether or not the double amputee track star should be granted bail. Today, Judge Desmond Nair finally delivered his verdict, and he did so in dramatic fashion. Ultimately, Nair said the prosecution failed to establish Pistorius as a flight risk or that he's too violent to be out on bail. I come to the conclusion that the accused has made a case to be released on bail. You can hear the reaction there from one of Pistorius's supporters in court. Bail was set at 1 million rand, or about $113,000. Pistorius was also ordered to stay away from witnesses and from his house, where he shot his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. Rian Milan is a writer based in Johannesburg. He's best known for his memoir, My Traitor's Heart, which focuses on racial relations in South Africa. He says public opinion about Pistorius has shifted over the past week. When the news first broke last week, there was this assumption that uh, Pistorius was a controlling Afrikaner male, heavily armed, dangerous, very possessive, um, perhaps sexually insecure, very jealous of all his girlfriends, that he had a history of a certain kind of, shall we say, coercive sexual violence. And this seemed to be another outbreak that had just gone much further and resulted in murder. And I think that the South African press treatment of him was like sort of fairly tough. There was the assumption with it that he was guilty as charged. And this has all changed radically in the, in the last day or two since the bail hearing began in earnest. I think that the fact that this man does not have legs is surely quite significant. His account of himself with this notion that he feels vulnerable because when he takes his artificial legs off, he has to hobble around on, on his stumps and he can't move particularly fast and therefore feels vulnerable. You know, South Africa is, I suppose, we're world famous now for having a very high crime rate. And just because we're paranoid doesn't mean that there isn't a real threat. So it struck me, because I've been so often in exactly the same situation myself, that when things start going bump in the night and you think there's somebody in the room with you, exactly the same thing happened to me four or five days ago. I was asleep in a friend's house and we had we had a break-in and you know, a guy came in and um, stole the laptop. It was neither here nor there. He wasn't violent. He wasn't armed. He could have been, but I, you know, <laughs> I stood and, looking and at him. This happened while you were there? Yes. Wow. And it's not, you know, I mean, the sort of thing that we've come to live with in South Africa. On the other hand, once he got into the witness stand and told his own story, a lot of people started saying, well, maybe this guy's got a point. Now, a lot of what uh, you write about as an author and journalist has been, from my understanding, issues of race in South Africa. And, and I, I imagine you can't escape it there. Does that have anything to do with the decision in the Pistorius case, do you think, or, or public opinion about it? No, I, I really don't think it affects the decision. But I mean, well, look, I mean, in South Africa, every issue is racial. Pistorius is not necessarily rich because he's white. On the, on the other hand, white people like him and I have had uh, opportunities that were for a long time were denied to black people. And so we tend to be much richer than our black peers. There's an awful lot of black suffering and hardship in South Africa. That's one of the reasons why our crime rate is so high and why there's, why there's so much violence. And that in turn is why 
Pistorius was by Quentin newspaper accounts, and I think they're reliable. He had six guns, including a, a semi-automatic and, and two double-barrel shotguns. I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a pretty Quite an formidable arsenal. arsenal. Yeah, that in turn might speak to a certain kind of racial paranoia if you have, because if you live where he does in a sort of gated community, in an upper-middle-class part of Pretoria. The people who you expect to come barreling through your windows at night and, and to uh, shoot you, perhaps, or, or in my case, to steal your laptop, they tend to be black. This is the nature of the South African drama. We, we racial stereotype each other all the time. Right. You know, there's a, a review of your uh, book, Resident Alien, that I saw, which says, it's, quote, worth an honored place in your safe alongside the cash and the pepper spray, which is not a review I don't think one would ever see in America. Well, you know, probably the only true line that I've ever really written about South Africa is that we yaw between terror and ecstasy. Quite often we we do the round trip several times in a single day. I mean, this is one of the extraordinary things about South Africa is that it's a place of extraordinary drama. Every day, every week brings stories that, that you're quite convinced are going to tear the country apart and start a civil war and, and put an end to the area in, w- in which we're living in and and uh, for two weeks, everyone's agonized about them, and then suddenly they just sort of get forgotten. They get blown off the front page by the next sort of dumbfounding crisis. And I'm afraid, you, you know, we still, even 20 years after the end of apartheid and the onset of, of, of democracy, that this sort of, shall we say, apocalyptic <laughs> mood still occurs from time to time, yes. Now, you speak about these issues that uh, at any moment could tear the country apart. There have been comparisons in in this particular case with the O.J. Simpson case in the, in the United States, which created a, a great rift between black and white. Is that comparison apt in this case? No, I don't think this case is going to go that way at all because there, there is no racial animus in this case. You, you, you have a white guy shooting a blonde supermodel. You must understand the prosecutor, this guy called Kerry Nell, he's A, an Afrikaner, and he's like a conservative, good, old-fashioned Afrikaner. Kerry Nell is is a very tough guy. He's gone up against very powerful and dangerous people. This isn't the most edgy case that he's he's ever handled. I think that if you had the suspicion that that Pistorius, because of his wealth or because of his international standing and because he's white, finds himself being treated more leniently than a poor black man in his position, then it might indeed sort of acquire a a racial... uh, a racial dimension, but I mean, at the moment, I think there's no talk of that at all. I don't think that the granting of bail at all is, is a racial decision. I think if you listen to the judge's judgment, it is very careful and even-handed and, and very closely reasoned. Rian Milan is a South African author and journalist. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Europeans can expect their economic crisis to continue at least for another year. European Union experts announced that grim forecast today. That's especially bad news for Spain, one of the country's hardest hit by the crisis. As people there struggle to make ends meet, many businesses are scrambling to stay alive. That's prompted one Spanish baker to start a small revolution. Navarro is his name, and his weapon is a loaf of bread that costs just 20 euro cents. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from the baker's home base in Court de Poblet near Valencia. In the very long line outside one of Navarro's three bakeries, an elderly customer named Milagros puts the low-cost bread in perspective. You come with one euro, she says. You leave with five loaves of bread. With that same euro before, you could only buy one. It's noon, and there are close to 50 people in line. Most of them are retirees, people living on fixed pensions, like Milagros herself. In the mornings, people say, the line goes around the block. You see unemployed people, Milagro says, but also working folk. People of all classes are coming. 
from all walks of life. The story goes that Pepe Navarro, the owner, was selling his bread at normal prices and going under because of the crisis. So he slashed his price. Now he's selling about 13,000 20-cent loaves a day. Every hour or so, big delivery vans show up and roll crates of freshly baked loaves past the crowds. On this day, Mr. Navarro isn't around, but a worker named Sofia takes a moment to talk. She says this isn't a gimmick. The low price is here to stay, and not only the customers benefit. A lot more people have been hired on, she says. We used to be four workers, now there are ten of us. It's the same in all the bakeries he's operating. Plus, he's hiring local people and creating jobs in delivery and at his main bread factory. Navarro has told Spanish media that that's the key to his ability to sell so cheap. He owns his whole supply chain. But the local baker's guild isn't buying it. It accuses Navarro of trying to price them out of business, and they've closed ranks to protect their higher prices. In a bakery across town, the owner, who doesn't want to give her name, says the rest of us in town refuse to sell our bread for 20 cents. Navarro is the only one. She says, we make quality bread and sell it according to the Baker's Guild norms at what we think is a fair price. But if the bakers of Cuarte Poblet's goal is to stop the contagion, they have failed. In towns across the region and in the regional capital of Valencia itself, signs for 20-cent loaves are proliferating in bakery windows. On an early morning in the neighboring town of Torrent, a sleepy baker awaits her first customers. On her door, there's a sign with just .20 written on it by hand. It's enough, she says. People get it, and they come in. Why have we followed suit, she says? Because we have no choice since this man, Mr. Navarro, came along and decided to set this price. Now, if you don't sell for the same, you lose your clients. Many bakeries have had to close. Cries of unfair from competitors haven't kept people from buying Navarro's low-cost bread. So the Guild is trying something else questioning the quality. A baker in downtown Valencia named Ana says Navarro's 20-cent price tag is a good thing for people who can't make ends meet. But she wonders about the quality of the ingredients, for example, the flour. If you lower the price, she says, you lower quality. To that, Navarro has said, sure, okay, a little bit, but so what? And it seems his customers agree. This is pensioner José Doce, a former ceramics worker who often has to provide meals for his grown daughters. Waiting in the long line at Navarro's, he says, Navarro's bread is better than your typical baguette. Of course, in the olden days, he says, it was a different story altogether. People made bread by hand. But now, considering it's all industrialized production, this bread is actually good. By the end of the day, it isn't all dried out. With a normal baguette, he says, if you go to eat it the next day, it's as hard as a stone. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon, Quarte Poblet, Spain. Italy, like Spain, has felt the sting of economic downturn in recent years. Unemployment and budget cuts have left deep scars across Italian society. And this weekend, Italian voters can do something about it. They'll be electing a new parliament and a new prime minister. Italy's center-right and center-left parties are engaged in their usual battle for votes. But the man who's grabbed everyone's attention is Beppe Grillo. He heads the anti-establishment five-star movement, and he's one fiery campaigner. Grillo and his movement have had some success before, mostly at the local level. But this could be the first time the five-star movement wins a significant number of seats in Parliament. Duncan McDonnell of the European University Institute has co-authored a study about Beppe Grillo's campaign and the tactics he's been using. So... 
How did this man get so popular? Well, Grillo started off essentially by creating a blog in 2005, which over time contained more and more political material. And this eventually led to creating a new political movement called the Five Star Movement at the end of 2009. And initially, this only contested local and regional elections, but now, as we know, it's contesting the general election. But it's a movement like none other in Europe in that it has started as essentially an internet-based movement, which then has gone from online to offline. So it really is a, an original type of political movement, the kind of which we, we really haven't seen before. Fittingly, for an anti-establishment campaigner, Grillo doesn't speak to the mainstream media. Everything is done uh, online with his followers. Has he learned a thing or two from U.S. politics, or is he the master? The United States example of how Obama has used the Internet to campaign has been taken on board. But in the case of Grillo, he takes this much further in that it's continuous. It's not just about campaigning. It's about informing. It's about creating policy. Um, Did he use the web to pick candidates? He did indeed. Um, yeah. the, the web was used to hold primaries. Is I believe the first internet primaries we've ever seen. They were used to pick the candidates for the general election, all of whom, according to the movement's rules, are people who've never served a day at any institutional level of government before. None have even been city councillors. They will be complete novices once they get into parliament. Where would you place uh, the new party, the Five Star Movement, on the uh, political spectrum in Italy? Well, that's an interesting question because their voters tend to be more to the centre-left, uh, moving towards the left, but they have a broad appeal. I mean, this is a catch-all party. If you read the programme of the Five Star Movement, it ranges from defence of the environment to the promotion of uh, unemployment benefit for everybody to the creation of a genuinely free free market economy in Italy, which we don't really have. Is the political establishment in Italy taking the Five Star Movement seriously? Are they being forced to take it seriously? Well, they're being forced to take them seriously now because the Five Star Movement is polling at around 16-17%. In the initial years, it was viewed very much as a joke. It was a comedian's movement which they figured would just be a bubble. It would get a lot of attention early on and then it would pop and it would implode. And that hasn't happened. Duncan McDonnell of the European University Institute on Beppe Grillo and his unorthodox political movement in Italy. He was talking to us from Paris, France. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. You know what? We're going to stay with Beppe Grillo for today's GeoQuiz. All right, so now you know that Beppe Grillo is a former comedian who's shaking up Italian politics. But do you know which city he's from? Not to worry, I've got a few clues. First, this is also the birthplace of Christopher Columbus. This port city once had one of the most powerful navies in Europe. Things were going pretty well there until the mid-1600s when the plague killed off half the city's population. But these days, more than 800,000 Italians call this northern city home. Want to know which sites to visit there? Well, you definitely want to check out the Lanterna, the lighthouse, which is a symbol of the city. There's also the fountain in the Piazza di Ferrari. That's where the locals like to hang out. And for a stroll, try the Lido d'Albaro. Plenty of great ice cream shops along there. 
And a final culinary clue, pasta al pesto is the city's iconic dish. You'll have to think fast, though. I'm going to give you just three seconds to come up with the answer. Uno, due, tre. The answer is Italy's sixth largest city, Genoa. Coming up, a Taiwanese-American singer in love with Brazilian jazz on PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is in Washington meeting with President Obama today. But before Abe left for the U.S., he gave an interview to The Washington Post that is not going down well in China. Abe described China as having a, quote, deeply ingrained need to spar with Japan and other neighbors over territory because Beijing uses external disputes to rally domestic support. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. Mary Kay, what is the reaction there? Well, predictably, the foreign ministry spokesman Hong Lei said today that China is strongly dissatisfied with these comments, um, astonished, in fact, that they distort facts and they attack and defame China. And he demanded an explanation. And not long after that, Xinhua, the Chinese news agency, ran a story saying that Japan had, in fact, clarified that the Washington Post had misquoted Prime Minister Abe. These provocative kind of comments have been going back and forth for quite a while now over the South China Sea, especially. Is it a distraction in China and Japan? Well, China's claiming territory and islands both in the South China Sea, where it has disputes with Vietnam and the Philippines and other countries in that region, and also in the East China Sea, where it has disputes with Japan over what China calls the Diaoyu Islands and the Japanese call the Senkakus. The Chinese say in the cases of all of this territory and all of these sea lanes that this has always been China's. And this is always China's approach when it comes to dealing with territorial disputes. Um, It goes back to ancient maps and to ancient voyages that Chinese sailors took and said, this shows that this is ours. The neighbors say, our sailors took voyages to those places too, and we have maps. This proves nothing. There, there has never been international recognition that this was China's. I think what's happening is that as the Chinese military strengthens and as it modernizes, it's flexing its muscles more. And China has over the last two, three, four years just become more aggressive in staking its claims to these territories. As we said, Abe is in Washington. I don't know, to a certain extent, it feels like the U.S. is is playing the parent in this role between two squabbling children. Well, I'm not sure that the Chinese would see it that way. I think they see the equals in this relationship to be China and the U.S. And they say the Japanese are being used by the U.S. as the U.S. tries to reassert its hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. The U.S. might say we never left the Asia-Pacific region and you know, we serve an important role as a balancer when there are tensions of the sort that have been cropping up over the last few months between China and Japan. The U.S., of course, has a defense treaty with Japan. So if there were to be a Chinese attack on Japan, the U.S. is obligated to come to Japan's assistance. Neither the U.S. nor China really would like to see that happen, and Japan, of course, would not either. So there seems to be a a general moment right now where people are sort of taking a breath. The Japanese had sent a negotiator in this week who quietly met with his Chinese counterpart, uh, China's special representative for Korean Peninsula Affairs, and um, they met on Wednesday. And because this was uh, initiated by the Japanese side, it was seen as an attempt to calm things down, let's talk this through. 
And therefore, when the Washington Post article came out, the Chinese side was was genuinely indignant. It's like, why are you saying this? You send your envoy and then you say this? The world's Mary Kay Magstad. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. Finally, today we meet Amy Tseng. She's a singer born in Taiwan and raised in the U.S., but her debut album is full of Brazilian jazz. Yeah, there's a backstory. I've been interested in Brazilian music for about 12 years now. Uh, I had just moved to New York, and my roommate at the time played this uh, recording by a Brazilian singer, Paula Morellenbaum. It was just amazing, and it really touched something in me. And that was really the moment that I decided that I wanted to learn how to sing Brazilian music. Meu coração não se cansa de ter esperança de um dia seu tudo que quer. That's Amy Tsang singing the tune Carasal Vagabundo from her debut album Sonho. And Amy, listening to the style of music, it really is like falling under a spell. What made you want to focus on this style of music for your debut? I just love Brazilian music. Um, the atmosphere, the rhythm, the harmonies um, really have touched me, and I feel um, very viscerally <laughs> towards it. So that's why I decided to focus my album on this music. It also fits some of the mood that I've been in. I moved from California a little over three years ago, and I'm enjoying my life in D.C. There's always a bit of homesickness, so that tinge of a wistful longing, which in Portuguese they have a word called saudade, runs through the album and runs through um, my feelings about being here. So, now, now speaking of saudade, let's let's back up a bit. You were born in mm-hmm. Taipei, Taiwan, mm-hmm. moved to uh, the United States when you were just a baby, and yep. now you're singing yep. uh, Brazilian tunes really yes. well, I might add. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, Though growing up, I also studied uh, classical piano. So I started that when I was four. So I had that classical music background as well. Do you speak Portuguese? Well, you could say I have rudimentary uh, travelers um, <laughs> Portuguese. I uh, I went to uh, Brazil for the first and only time of, uh, two years ago, and I could get around. But yes, my my Portuguese conversational Portuguese is is pretty uh, rudimentary, as I said. Well, how how did the Brazilians feel about uh, your singing their songs? Oh well, they're very receptive. I I think. Part of it is that they're just appreciative that other people appreciate their culture. So I've had a number of Brazilian teachers, and they've been very generous and patient about teaching this music. And again, I think part of it is uh, wanting to expose the music to other musicians and also wanting people to learn it the way that the Brazilians do it. And I think they really appreciate when you respect that tradition and at least try <laughs> to learn it from them directly. Right. No one is offended by uh, a non-Brazilian taking on their, their music. I think part of it is the attitude in which you you approach the music. And again, I don't claim at all to be authentic, but at least I've really tried to learn what the style is and go to the original sources instead of just sort of approximating and saying that I'm singing Brazilian music. So... <laughs> Sou a atriz 
certeza de que é amor tem dessas vezes mais é bom para fazer as pazes mais Jazz vocalist Amy Tsang. Her debut album is called Sonio. You can listen to two of her bossa nova tunes at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Marker Werman is back next week. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.